This episode was made possible by the generous support of listeners like you. For more information, please visit patreon.com slash author Chris Lester. You're listening to The Raven and the Writing Desk, the weekly podcast about the writings of Chris Lester and Liminal Corvid Press. This is episode 158. Hello, Metamorphs. Welcome back to The Raven and the Writing Desk. I'm your host, Chris Lester, and I'm here to share my fresh new fiction with you. You can learn more about me and my work at chrislester.org and metamorphcity.com. But for now, let's get to this week's story. Today I'm bringing you Chapter 16 of my Metamore City novel, The Lost and the Least. If you're new to the show, go back to Episode 143 to hear this story from the beginning. The following recap will contain spoilers. All over Metamore City, people have been going missing, and a diverse group of heroes and misfits have been piecing together the mystery. Detective and wizard Catherine Catane went looking for Mrs. Roberts, an elderly cat morph, as a favor to one of her street-side contacts. Kate's augury showed Mrs. Roberts getting picked up off the street by masked men, who stuffed her into a van and drove away. Medical examiner Morgan Drowling has discovered a pattern of fake vampire attacks, where the victims were drained of blood and then given a phony set of bite marks. The cases were all referred to the Lothanasi, but now it looks like a human serial killer is on the loose. Homicide detective Michael Pirelli went digging into old case files, looking for more victims who may have been killed by the same method. Meanwhile, the runner Callie Linder has been following up leads on the street side of things. Accompanied by her boyfriend, the college student and aspiring author, Will Karenson, Callie tried to track down a group of street folks who stopped showing up at their community kitchen. In each case, the pattern was the same. Somebody vanished, and no one has seen or heard anything. The most recent disappearance was especially dramatic. An entire van full of new immigrant workers for a vampire-run brothel, along with their madam and all of her bodyguards. The loss of such a valuable set of human resources provides the final proof that the vampires were not behind the killings. Accompanied by John, an incubus priest from the Church of Hedonism, Kate compared notes with Callie, where she learned about the van full of missing prostitutes. They then passed that information on to Morgan and her partner Ava, another runner who frequently does business for the Vampire Syndicate. Morgan, in turn, told Kate about the autopsies and the phony vampire bites. It's clear to everyone now that something big is going down, and whoever's behind it, they want the vampires to take the blame. While Kate, John, and Ava follow Morgan back to the morgue, Callie and Will head for the home and business of Callie's old mentor, Silas Kenning. Callie hopes that Silas can help her track down their two missing vans the one with the red prostitutes, and the one that kidnapped Mrs. Roberts. Unbeknownst to Callie and Will, however, Silas got a visit of his own the previous night, from a stealthy assault team that broke through the elaborate defenses on his building. Trapped inside with no way out, Silas put his system into lockdown, burying his computers in an armored concrete bunker. Then Silas went to his gun safe, determined to go down fighting. 
The Lost and the Least, a novel of Metamore City, written and read by Chris Lester. Chapter 16 As promised, Callie picked up Will from his apartment on Saturday evening. Callie seemed on edge as Will put on his helmet. Everything okay? he asked. Callie's hands clenched against the control yoke. I can't get a hold of Silas. He's not answering my calls or returning my messages. Is that unusual? Not for an hour or two, Callie admitted, but I've been trying to reach him since this morning. Will climbed onto the swoop behind her. Well, let's just get over there, then. If he's as omniscient as you say he is, he'll definitely see us coming. Callie's frown deepened. Yeah, she murmured. She closed the visor on her helmet and took off without another word. It didn't take them long to reach Silas's building. Kenning Security Consulting was cloaked in darkness. The floodlights that had bathed the surrounding streets two nights ago were turned off. Callie's voice came through the speaker in Will's helmet. I don't like the look of this. Hang on, I'm going to check the perimeter. Callie flicked on the swoop's high beams, rose to about three meters above the pavement, and started a slow loop. She did something with the yoke and the thrust pedals that kept the nose pointed at the building while the craft slipped sideways around it. Callie adjusted the nose up and down as they moved, playing the lights over the walls from top to bottom. Will didn't see any lights on, not even emergency exit signs. A server farm like the one Silas operated would have to have backup batteries and generators that would kick on automatically, so that suggested that the building had been without power for several hours at least. He began to understand why Callie was worried. They didn't see anyone moving around the facility, but in the alley behind the building, they found thick, heavy tread marks from some kind of large, wheeled vehicle. Callie lowered the swoop and examined the tracks. Somebody was in a hurry. She pointed to a spot where the tracks curved in toward the building. There were deep furrows in the gravel. They made these skid marks when they hit the brakes. Will saw another patch of gravel with even deeper depressions, several meters back from the building. Looks like they left pretty fast, too. I'm guessing they backed out and then spun their wheels here when they were leaving. Good eye, Callie said. He couldn't read her expression with the visor closed, but he could hear the tension in her voice. It looks like a basic snatching grab, but who'd be crazy enough to try one on Silas? Will went up to the wall in front of the tread marks, examining it in the light of the swoop's headlamps. Is there a secret door somewhere around here? Callie stepped up beside him. Maybe. Why? Will gestured at the apparently solid walls. Well, the only obvious doors I saw are the front entrance and the two garage doors, and those are both facing the street. If somebody was trying to get in fast, shouldn't they have come in that way? Unless they knew Silas had a bolt hole on this side, Callie said, nodding. It makes sense he'd have another way out, but I don't know how anybody would have learned where it was. Will gestured toward the street side of the building. Should we go inside? I'm not liking our options, but I think we'd better, Callie said grimly. Stay close to me and watch my back. 
She pulled a pistol from her saddlebag, checked the chamber and the magazine, then headed for the front of the building. The front door was closed. Callie carefully examined both the door handle and the security panel beside it. The display was dark, and a handful of wires were exposed inside a small access port. Several of the wires had been cut. Callie gingerly tested the door handle. It opened. No alarms went off. The killing room inside the front entrance was pitch black. Callie pulled a small electric torch out of a belt pocket, clicked it on, and attached it under the muzzle of her handgun. She swept the beam over the room's interior. The hidden stairs at the far end of the room were exposed, and Will saw what looked like pieces of rebar jammed into the machinery to hold them open. Callie stopped at the top of the stairs and waited for a long moment, apparently listening for trouble. Will couldn't hear anything except his own breathing, which sounded doubly loud in the tight confines of the helmet. Finally, she made her way down the stairs, one careful step at a time, bracing her gun with both hands. Will followed a couple of meters behind her, walking as quietly as he could. The elevator in the basement was as dead as everything else in the facility, so Callie led Will to the emergency stairwell. A faint odor hung in the air, something sweet and vaguely familiar. What's that smell? Will asked, his voice just above a whisper. Halothane, Callie said, her voice coming out quiet but clear in Will's helmet speaker. Knockout gas. You've probably had it at the dentist before. Will froze. Is it safe for us to be in here? You wouldn't want to hang around, but it's pretty diluted at this point. Just keep moving. The door at the top of the stairs had a large, circular dent near what was left of the latch. Whoever had gone through it must have used one of those battering rams Will had seen before on cop shows. The door was still slightly ajar, resting on a twisted bit of metal protruding from the door jamb. Callie held up a hand toward Will, then took off her helmet, set it on the steps, and leaned in close to the door, listening. Will took off his own helmet and listened, too, but he didn't hear anything, especially not the whir of computers and cooling systems that he had heard the first time he visited. The silence was so complete that his ears started ringing. When Callie moved again, she did so quickly but quietly slipping through the door and running in a half-crouch to the tall filing cabinets on the far side of the room. She knelt beside one of the cabinets and surveyed the room, the beam of her torch sweeping back and forth. After a moment, she moved to the top of the steps that led to the server room, then shone her light down at the floor below. Clear, she said softly. Will came out of the stairwell. He pulled out his cell phone and turned on the light, then slowly turned in a circle, examining the loft. Will wasn't a detective, but even he could tell that a fight had happened here. Silas's gun safe hung open, and three of the weapons lay on the floor over by the bathroom, a compact military-style rifle and two semi-automatic pistols. The stairwell door and the wall around it were peppered with bullet holes, and a large number of empty shell casings littered the floor around the dropped weapons. Will saw dark, red-brown stains on the wall and floor, but whoever had been hit had either survived or been carried out afterward. 
Will went over to the bathroom and took a closer look. He saw more bullet holes there, but no blood. Either Silas was a better shot than whoever was after him, Will thought, or they wanted him alive. Shit. Callie's voice echoed up from the server room. Will hadn't even noticed her going down there. He jogged over to the balcony and looked down. What is... What the hell? The computers were gone. Millions of marks of computer equipment vanished without leaving behind so much as a dangling wire. Solid metal plates sat where each of the servers had previously been. Will ran down the stairs to take a closer look. The plates were recessed several centimeters into the floor, like someone had dropped them into the concrete while it was still wet. Will knocked on one with his shoe. It felt solid and thick, no flex in it at all. Somebody stole Silas's computers? Will asked. Callie shook her head. Her mouth was compressed in a thin, hard line, and her eyes glinted with anger. They tried to. He put the system into lockdown. Damn it. I don't understand, Will said. If he stopped them from stealing the computers, isn't that a good thing? Oh, sure, Callie said, her tone acidic. In the long run, it's great. But in the short term, it means we can't get to them either. Her hands balled into fists. Which means I've got no idea who these fuckers are or how to find them. She turned away, lowered her head. When she spoke again, her voice was thick with suppressed emotion. And now they've got Silas. Will looked around at the huge, empty room. There was something central in all this that he still didn't understand. Callie, what's on those computers? What was Silas doing with them? Callie took a few deep, careful breaths before answering. Silas is our watchdog, she said quietly. He's the street's memory, and its conscience. He knows every person in the Runner's Guild, and keeps a record of every job we take. What we did, when we did it, who paid us, and how much. Will gaped. But you're spies. Thieves. Saboteurs. If it got out what you do, you could go to jail. Yep, Callie said. Her voice was low, flat, carefully controlled. But there's a bigger danger than that, Will. When the stuff you do for a living is illegal, how do you keep from being cheated? Will thought about that for a moment, and the pieces clicked into place. You need a referee, he said. Somebody who everybody trusts, the runners and their clients. And that's Silas, Callie said. If you break your contract, Silas will know about it. And soon the rest of the street will, too. And there's nowhere you can hide where he won't find you. A sickening feeling settled in Will's gut. If we're right, and there is some kind of secret group trying to go after the syndicate, you've got it, Callie said. The stuff Silas knows could change the whole balance of power on the street. They couldn't get his computers. They'll try to get the information out of him. Callie strode back up the stairs to the loft. Will followed. What do we do now? Callie grabbed Silas's toolkit, which was lying next to a dismantled security alarm. We get the power back on, we get the alarm system up and running again. 
Will stopped. Wait a minute. Silas has been captured by bad guys who maybe want to take over the whole street, and you're worried about the alarms? Shouldn't we be trying to rescue him? Callie slammed her fist on the wall. It was so sudden, so violent, that Will completely forgot what he was going to say next. He stared at her. The muscles were jumping in Callie's neck, and her whole body was rigid with tension. I can't do anything for Silas until I know what's going on. But if word gets out that our watchdog is gone, the whole system down here falls apart. If that happens, a whole lot of people are going to get hurt, whether they learn anything from Silas or not. She counted off points on her fingers. First, we secure this place. Then we get Silas's eyes and ears back online so we know what's happening now. Then we dig into the archives and see what Silas might know about the bastards who are doing this. Will nodded soberly. I want to help, but I don't know much about computers. I know. Callie clapped a hand on his shoulder as she headed for the stairs. Luckily, I know someone who does. Kate looked down at the body of the old woman lying on one of Morgan's examination tables. There was no doubt. She was the same cat morph Kate had seen in her augury. The patterns on her finger pads matched the prints Kate had lifted from the apartment, too. They'd found Lyle's friend, and she was already dead. I wasn't even allowed to file the missing person's report until this morning, she thought numbly. Way, way too late. She should feel sad. She should feel angry. She should feel some kind of satisfaction that they'd stumbled onto something important. Mostly, she felt tired, and there was a pain in her stomach that wouldn't go away. She didn't think it was from the birthday dinner. Pull it together, Kate, she told herself. This is what you do. You catch bad guys. Just dig into the case and you'll be back to your old self in no time. Fake it till you make it. Kate examined the body carefully with her aura sight. Ugly, purple-black energy lingered around the body's energy nodes, the top of the skull, the center of the forehead, and five more spots down the length of the spine. These were the amalan, the points where life-aspected mana concentrated in the humanoid body. And now they reeked of death mana. She was a sacrifice, Kate said, turning to Morgan and the others. The way the blood was drained, down here? She pointed to the inside of the woman's thigh. That's very close to the sacral node. It gives you a clean, straight path for draining the mana, all the way down the spine. Ava eyed the body thoughtfully. What sort of spell would that be used for? Kate shrugged. Honestly, it could be almost anything. They use this woman as a battery, plain and simple. But sacrificial magic is more useful for destruction than creation, isn't it? John asked. For creation, you'd probably use sex magic. In general, yeah. But human sacrifice is really potent stuff. It's more potent for destructive spells, but there's a reason wizards used it so much in the battle days. There's no other power source that gets you the same payoff for such a small amount of effort. Can you do an augury on the body? Morgan asked. Perhaps we could learn more about what they used her for. Kate shook her head. Unfortunately, no. 
The body's been too disturbed. Find me one that's still fresh, that hasn't been moved too much, and maybe I can do something for you. But divination is really finicky and delicate, and there's a hundred things that can screw up a reading. Morgan nodded. If I have any more John Doe's turning up, I'll call you before we touch the body. She gestured at the other examination tables. Would you like to take a look at the others? Kate examined the other bodies Morgan had identified as false vampire attacks. Each of them showed the same residue of death mana that pointed to human sacrifice. Somebody's collecting a lot of juice, Kate said. These all came in on different days, right? Right, Morgan said. Does that help? Maybe, Kate said, frowning. Either they've got one ritual that they're repeating over and over again, or they're flywheeling. Ava raised a hand. Sorry, flywheeling? It's a metaphor, John said. A flywheel stores a ton of energy, but it's big and heavy, and it takes a lot of effort to get it moving. Once you get it up and running, though, you can do big things. When you flywheel a ritual, it means you're pouring in a bunch of mana, trapping it little by little, and then you can use it to cast something big. Morgan gave John a surprised look. He shrugged. We do it a lot at the temple. Sex magic is great for flywheeling. And a lot more fun than sacrifice, Kate said. But you just said that one sacrifice is incredibly potent, Ava said. What sort of magic would need you to... to flywheel a string of sacrifices? It's been done, Kate said. You ever heard of Manzona Island? It's off the north coast of Songafield. I think so. Ava frowned. There's some kind of ancient ruin there, yes? The pillars of... something. Ajiogiac, Kate said. Bless you, Morgan and John said in unison. Kate glared at them both, and then turned back to Ava. It's a teleportation device. You can move instantaneously to anywhere in the world, but it takes at least three human sacrifices to send a person through it. Ava looked around at the three bodies on the tables. She raised her eyebrows at Kate. I know, Kate said. The point is, that's the kind of power level we're talking about. Something that can seriously warp the fabric of reality. Morgan pursed her lips. And given that the people in question are abducting and murdering random strangers for it, I doubt their intended changes to reality are anything we would find palatable. If that's what they're doing... Kate said. Like I said, they might be doing something less ambitious and just doing it repeatedly. Either way, they're doing it to our people, Ava said grimly. I don't take kindly to anyone treating street rats as disposable. Kate gave her a respectful nod. That's one thing we can agree on, Runner. Morgan's phone chimed. She glanced down at the screen. Corporal Pirelli is here. He's been searching the archives for more suspicious cases. Excuse me a moment. Morgan left the examination room and headed for the reception area. Ava looked at Kate and John. Do either of you know this Corporal Pirelli? We've met, Kate said. He's a junior homicide detective. Bit of a hayseed, but he's a good guy and sharp. Ava nodded. Is our presence going to be a problem for him? Kate frowned. That was a good point, actually. As a general rule, cops shouldn't be discussing ongoing investigations with civilians. 
Kate herself had a little more leeway because of her private eye persona, but she didn't want to put Michael in a position that might get him in trouble. Come on, let's wait in Morgan's office. They shut themselves inside, and Kate closed the mini-blinds on the window that looked out into the examination room. John claimed Morgan's desk chair, and Kate sat on his lap. Ava paced slowly around the room, idly examining the bookshelves and the artwork on the walls. Kate slid her fingers into the slats of the mini-blinds and peeked out. Michael Pirelli had a stack of files balanced on one arm and was pointing something out to Morgan with his free hand. Kate was very curious what Michael had uncovered, but she needed to keep her Kitridge persona intact, so she just sat on John's lap and fidgeted. John put his mouth close to her ear. Someone's eager to get back to work, I see. His voice was a low rumble that sent tingles of arousal straight to her groin. That is very distracting, Kate hissed. John chuckled, and that made it even worse. Good, he said. When do you think the transfer will go through? Kate shrugged. I don't know. Bureaucracy's usually slow, but Captain Shaw's used to getting their way. I guess we'll see. Michael talked to Morgan for a few more minutes, then passed over the stack of files and walked out. Kate gave him another thirty seconds to get out of earshot, then hopped off John's lap and went out to the exam room. What have we got? she asked. Morgan passed over the files. Cases referred to the Lothanasi over the last three months, across all precincts. All were suspected of being vampire attacks, but Pirelli noticed an interesting division between them. She pointed to the folders Pirelli had placed the files in. Most were a plain buff color, but five of them were bright red. Kate opened one of the red folders and examined the contents. Michael had photocopied the original files, including the photographs from the autopsy reports. The resulting images were grainy and black and white, but it was still easy to see what had caught Michael's attention. By the prophet, Kate said. John leaned in over her shoulder. He made a sucking sound between his teeth. That guy has had a very bad day. It was an understatement. Much like the bodies they had already examined, the man in the photographs had been bound by his wrists and ankles. The quote-unquote bite marks on the neck were also the same, and no more convincing than the others, now that Kate knew what to look for. But there, the similarities ended. The man in the photo had a wild, untrimmed beard and matted hair, and his skin looked filthy, all of which suggested that he had been confined for weeks instead of the day or two that Mrs. Roberts and the others had been gone. His body was covered with small scars, cuts, and burns. His back was crisscrossed with lash marks, and the backs of his legs were a mottled patchwork of bruises. Kate wordlessly passed the file to John and opened the next red folder in the stack. This one was a woman— perhaps in her late forties or early fifties. Her body carried the same marks of deprivation and torture as the man's. Kate gestured to the lab bench in the assistant examiner's office. Over here, she said. They spread out the five red files to look at them side by side. All showed signs of extended confinement. All had been tortured in similar ways. Apart from that, there appeared to be nothing to connect them. 
They represented a diverse mixture of ages, races, and genders. Three were cursed, two were mundane. All had been found in different parts of the city. It was Ava who first noticed another connection. Duke Grayling, she said, reading the name on one of the autopsy reports. She moved down the line of files, pointing to each of them in turn. Veronica Hudson, Tyler Schoenberg, Feng Li, Nathaniel Barnhart. She raised her eyebrows. Notice anything? No does, Kate said, frowning. Why were all these people identified? Their cases were turned over to the Lightbringers, just like the others. John ran his finger down the nearest report. Feng Li reported missing on February 17th. Kate looked down at the file in front of her. Veronica was reported missing on January 11th. They were all reported missing, Ava said. All at least two weeks before their bodies were found. That's why they were identified so quickly. The police were already looking for them. This sounds like a different killer to me, John said. Maybe one of them is a copycat? Copying what? Kate said. None of these cases were ever in the press. You need publicity to create copycats. Besides, the false vampire bites are the same, Morgan said. She pointed to close-up images that had been taken of the victims' necks. Look, there's no dentition from the other teeth, nothing on the other side of the neck from the lower jaw. This is the same killer. But a different purpose, Kate mused. She chewed on her lower lip, thinking hard. Something connects these people to each other. We need to find out what it is. That may give us a clue about what kind of ritual they're planning. Not to mention identifying potential victims before they're abducted, John said. Good, Morgan said. I'm submitting a report on the murders to special investigations. If there's a death magic cult abducting people in Metamore, that falls under their purview. There's another angle on this as well, Ava said. If this group is storing up arcane power for something serious, that means they have a base of operations. That means supplies coming in and money going out. Follow the money, Kate said, nodding. I like it. Rituals need specialized equipment, especially something on this scale. They may not be using money, Morgan pointed out. If they have access to reagents and equipment for some legitimate purpose, they could be borrowing or stealing them. Some of it, yeah, Kate said. But to work with death mana? That stuff is really tightly regulated. It'd be tough to skim all the gear you'd need without someone noticing. Which means smuggling it in from overseas, Ava said. I'll talk to the smugglers I know. If there's been an uptick in demand for that sort of merchandise, someone will be running it. Sounds good, Kate said. I'll work on the victim's side. John, you with me? Oh, why not, John said brightly. Back at the temple, all I have to look forward to is the nightly orgies. And what fun is that compared to tracking down sadistic killers? Your sarcasm is noted and ignored, Kate said. Morgan, finish up that report to SID and put out the alert to the other medical examiners. If any more supposed vampire attacks show up, let us know right away. Morgan nodded sharply. Of course, darling. Kate looked around the group. Anything else we should all know before we break? Just that you're really hot when you're giving orders, John said. Kate glared at him. John? Oh no, he's right, Morgan said. Ava shrugged and conceded this with a wave. Kate rolled her eyes. 
Good meeting, team. Let's go get some bad guys. And that's the end of Chapter 16. Come back next time for Chapter 17, when Callie recruits our favorite telepathic computer expert, and Captain Montgomery has some words for Kate. Normally, this is the part of the show where I update you on my writing progress. I'm going to take a point of personal privilege here and talk about some other stuff that's been going on in my life. I was supposed to drop this episode last week. Unfortunately, the day after episode 157 released, our dog Dulcie took a turn for the worse, and we had to take her to the vet to be euthanized. I held her in my arms while the sedative took hold, and we stayed with her to the end. Last Sunday, we took her ashes out to the farm where Mel works, and where Mel and I got married last April. We laid her to rest beneath the trees where we said our vows. Dulcie lived a long life. She was 16 years and 11 months old at the time of her passing. Mel and I were privileged to be her doggy parents for the last four years, but we almost didn't get the chance. You see, Dulcie's original owner was a rancher in Montana. After he lost his land in the recession, they had to move into a trailer park, and Dulcie didn't do well there. The landlord forced her to live outside on a chain. Kids from the neighborhood tormented her on the way to and from school. One time, Dulcie got off her chain and chased one of these abusive kids, which led the parents to take her to court as an aggressive dog. Dulcie was cleared of any wrongdoing, but the rancher and his wife unfortunately divorced soon after and he had to surrender his beloved dogs to Stafford Animal Shelter in Livingston. I want you to take a moment to think about what happened next, because it's amazing. You see, most shelters wouldn't waste time trying to adopt a dog like Dulcie. She was almost 13 years old. Her fur was matted from living outside, and she'd been in trouble with the law. On paper, everything about Dulcie's case said she should be put to sleep immediately. But Stafford is a special place, with special people. They saw Dulcie for who she was, a smart, feisty, and healthy dog who had a lot to give to the right person. They gave her a chance. And about two months after she came to the shelter, she met my partner, Mel, when we volunteered to start walking the shelter dogs for some exercise. Mel was hired on as a technician at the shelter that fall, and Dulcie bonded to her so completely that it was obvious that they belonged together. Stafford gave us time to find a house to rent where we could have a dog, and at Christmas time, we brought Dulcie home. Dulcie got nearly four more good years of life, with lots of love and plenty of adventures. We got a loyal friend who taught us how to be dog parents. Though she bonded to Mel first, Dulcie eventually grew close to me, too. And when she got frightened, or confused, or started to have trouble getting around, she trusted her papa to make things okay. I will always cherish the memories we made together, and we have the generosity and kindness of Stafford Animal Shelter to thank for it. This year Mel did a fundraiser for Stafford for her birthday, in memory of Dulcie. Some of you saw me share it on the Fans of Metamore City Facebook group, and some of you donated. Together, we raised almost $300 for this brave little shelter who takes chances on animals that others would consider unadoptable. If you didn't get a chance to chip in on the fundraiser, I invite you to make a donation when you can, 
I'll have a link in the show notes. Or, if you can't give, find a good local shelter where you can volunteer your time. Every little bit helps. Every little bit of money, and every little bit of love. And I can tell you from personal experience, shelters change lives. Rest in peace, Dulcie Bear. Your papa loves you, now and forever. If you'd like to share your thoughts about the show, send your feedback in text or audio to metamorecityfeedback at gmail.com. To leave a voicemail, dial area code 641-715-3900, then enter extension 255082, followed by the pound sign. My Facebook is facebook.com slash author Chris Lester. The fan group is Fans of Metamore City on Facebook, and my Mastodon handle is at author Chris Lester at wandering.shop. If you like this show, take a minute and leave me a review on Apple Podcasts. It makes a big difference in helping people find the show. That's all for this week. I'll be back next time with more fresh new fiction. Until then, keep it on the bright side. This is Chris Lester, signing out. The contents of this podcast are copyright 2018 by Chris Lester and Liminal Corvid Press. The show is released under a Creative Commons, attribution, non-commercial, no derivatives license, so don't change it, don't sell it, but feel free to share it all you like. For more information about this license, please visit creativecommons.org.